0: To the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw at americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection.
1: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the second episode of this podcast series on unusual litigations. I'm Stuart Rebeck, I'm the chair of the Business and Corporate Litigation Committee, and this series of podcasts looks at disputes that don't necessarily follow the usual pattern that most business lawyers are familiar with. You deal with claims in a regular state or federal court, the claims are in a complaint, and typically they seek damages or an injunction or something similar, such as a declaration. In this episode we'll be looking at something different tribal court litigation these are different kinds of disputes and often in different forums from the ones i just described and we are fortunate to have with us two people who are really knowledgeable about the issues surrounding tribal litigation first grant christensen grant is associate professor of law at the university of north dakota and director of the indian law certificate program he's an associate justice on the supreme court of the standing rock sioux tribe and is admitted to practice in both Minnesota and the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. He's the author of a treatise published this year, "Reading American Indian Law: Foundational Principles." We also have with us Ryan Drevis-Carrot, who is a partner in the law firm Galanda Broadman in Seattle. Ryan's practice focuses on representing tribal governments and businesses in gaming, public affairs, taxation, and economic development. He also represents individuals who have been harmed by state actors in civil rights and wrongful death litigation. Ryan and Grant are both co-chairs of the Tribal Litigation Subcommittee in the Business and Corporate Litigation Committee. Gentlemen, thanks for appearing. Let's talk a bit about tribal law and tribal courts, and we can start with a very basic question. What is a tribal court, and how is it different from a regular state court? Well, uh, so this is Grant. Hello.
2: Uh, tribal courts uh, they are essentially the judicial branch of federally recognized tribes. Uh, there are 573 federally recognized tribes now. Uh, and, and that number, people are often surprised to learn, uh, changes from time to time. So uh, we still have the, the government recognizing its relationship or its government-to-government relationship with new groups of indigenous peoples uh, based upon our, our historical patterns and backgrounds. And so even just with the Trump administration, we, we've added seven or eight new tribes in the last three years. Um, there are about 300-ish tribal courts. Uh, so more than half of tribes have one. Uh, and they, they are essentially the, the judicial branch. They enforce the laws of the tribe. So tribes are their own sovereign. Uh, they have their own police forces. They have their own constitution. Their own elected branches of government, which which create laws, and the tribal courts are the branch of tribal government that enforce tribal laws.
0: Thanks, and I'll just I'll just jump in there. Uh, this is Ryan drevers uh, Thanks, uh, Stuart, for, for hosting us and for having us on. Um, I think it's important to recognize when you're practicing in tribal courts uh, that it sort of runs the gamut as far as the uh, the. Uh, the way that the tribal court works, the sophistication of the tribal court, um, the rules, and as um, Grant mentioned, uh, there, are some, uh, there are some tribes that don't even have a, uh, a tribal court. Um, so it runs the gamut from uh, courts with very established uh, precedent, with established uh, rules. Uh, the Navajo Nation, for instance, has various levels of courts up to appellate courts, as do um, uh, many, many tribal courts. Um, But there's also uh, some tribes that don't have any established courts. They have sort of administrative courts. Um, And it runs the gamut. I think it's important if um, if this is an area of of law that uh, you find yourself practicing in, um, as we'll probably get into um, later on in the podcast. Uh, If you find your client brought into a tribal court or if you're forced to litigate in the tribal court, it's very important to... Take a look at the the rules that apply to that court, um, the uh, uh, any any sort of precedent that exists, um, any sort of resolutions that are passed by the tribal government that may also apply to that court that are outside of the uh, the tribal code. Um, and all of these these nuances are uh, vary from tribe to tribe, uh, so it's very tribe specific. And if you go into a tribal court, just assuming that federal court rules and, uh, and federal law p- applies, uh, you, will be, you will be very, very um, surprised and uh, taken aback.
2: You also need to remember that uh, your ordinary license to practice in state court may or may not be valid in tribal court. So, for example, Navajo Nation have their own Navajo bar exam. And <clears throat> you, you sit the Navajo bar in order to get license to appear in front of Navajo courts. For the most part, if you're licensed in in your local state bar, uh, you can uh, obtain a license to practice in tribal court, but it will sometimes require joining a tribal bar uh, or paying a fee or taking an oath uh, in front of that bench in order or before you you make your first filing in tribal court. And so, again, I, I can't emphasize Ryan's point. Every tribe has its own set of rules. Uh, and the rules vary a lot more than
1: they do between the fifty states, um, from one tribe to another. Okay, picking up on something that Ryan had mentioned before, uh, how can people who aren't members of Native American tribes end up in a non in um,
0: in a tribal court? Well, uh, there's uh, innumerable ways that you can find yourself in a tribal court, um, but generally it's the way you find yourself in any court a dispute arises and the plaintiff files an action in uh the jurisdiction of his or her his or her choosing uh which results then in you being brought into the court and now the question comes up is uh uh you know does that court have jurisdiction um over over you and that's there's there's a lot of uh a lot of Fighting that goes on about the jurisdiction, um, and I think that that's most of what uh, representing a client who finds him, his or herself in tribal court uh, is is most of what you're doing is is arguing about uh, jurisdiction. Um, for the most part, um, a lot of these disputes uh, focus on jurisdiction. Um, so,
2: Jack, go ahead, Grant. Yeah, the I, I mean, so much on jurisdiction, right? So as a, as a member of, of a, a tribal appellate court, right, we hear cases where, where non-members argue that the tribe lacks jurisdiction over them. The issue is so prevalent that it's been the basis of seven U.S. Supreme Court decisions since 1981, um, right? Just the question of, of the, the jurisdiction of the tribal bench itself um, has, has been heard by the Supreme Court seven times uh, in the last 40 years. Uh, and so you really do, you argue a lot over that, that idea, can the court hear the case? Um, but for, there's this principle of exhaustion, right, that, that ordinarily says, you know, if, if the tribal court's jurisdiction is is even merely plausible, then you have to go to the tribal court and exhaust your tribal court remedies so that the tribal courts have the ability to create the record. Because a, a lot of times the law might rely upon Uh, in order to determine the extent of the tribe's jurisdiction or the contours or context of the dispute, uh, you're going to be looking at tribal law. And federal courts are not experts in, in the law of individual tribes, especially since every tribe has its own set of laws and rules. And so you have to even, even to challenge the jurisdiction in a federal court, you must first exhaust your remedies in a tribal court so that the tribe can create the record that the federal court can then review which means that just contesting jurisdiction can sometimes be a multi-year battle when it comes to to civil litigation in the tribal court system, because you have to exhaust not just your tribal trial court, but your tribe's appellate court. Some tribes have intermediate appellate courts. Some of them have have appeals to counsel. Some of them have uh, alternative dispute resolutions, peacemaker courts or traditional courts. Uh, and the, to the extent that you have to develop a record or exhaust your tribal court remedies, it can be a lengthy process.
0: And one thing also to recognize is that federal courts are courts, are courts of limited jurisdiction. Generally, uh, these issues are complex and the courts uh, are more likely to just kick the case out. Uh, there's exceptions to the exhaustion doctrine, but it's very, very, very rare uh, that the court will apply those because, quite frankly, the courts don't want to uh, don't want to touch on a lot of these issues, and for a good reason. We have um, in the federal jurisprudence the idea of uh, of strong recognition of tribal sovereignty. And what that means uh, for tribal courts is allowing the courts to resolve issues on their own and having the federal government, federal courts, get involved very, very rarely and only when absolutely necessary.
1: Okay, let me flip the question around now. Are there circumstances in which Native American tribes can be hauled into a regular state or federal court or individual tribe members? Yeah, so, so tribes uh, enjoy the
2: same sovereign immunity that states or the U.S. federal government enjoy, uh, including immunity from suit. So the Supreme Court has been pretty clear that uh, if you want to sue a tribe, uh, you need to obtain that waiver of sovereign immunity. And that even extends to a state attempting to sue a tribe, right? So a state is unhappy with something a tribe is doing inside its borders, Um and, and we just had that reaffirmation just a couple years ago, uh, Michigan versus the Bay Mills Indian Community case, where Justice Kagan authored the majority opinion and said, look, there is no, you know, all, there is no waiver. Congress has never provided, nor has the tribe waived the ability of, of the state to sue a tribe, even for tribal activities that take place outside the reservation, that take place on state land. The tribe still has immunity from suit so in order to sue a tribe in a, in a state or federal court you're going to need to obtain a waiver of immunity from the tribe itself and these waivers are you know often negotiated in your commercial dealings or your contracts with the tribe um, you can also you know at, at the very last resort there is no uh, waiver of immunity from from federal prosecution so uh, if you think that the tribe has done something wrong you can ask the United States to intervene on your behalf, but that happens so incredibly rarely that it's it's ordinarily not even economically worth pursuing that possibility. So you or, you need a waiver of, of the uh, from of immunity in order to attach uh, the the tribe in a, a federal court, and then tribal members are are similarly extended the tribe's immunity. Um, you know, not all tribes even have like a tort claim waiver. Like states and and the U.S. government do, many tribes have at least a limited tort claim waiver, but not all. Um, and so uh, you can't sue members of of the tribe who are acting pursuant to uh, their official duties, uh, as long as you know they if as long as they're acting pursuant to their job, they're covered by the tribe's immunity. And so you can you can try to go after an individual, you know, an ex parte young kind of situation. In order, you know, we have our own. Um, uh, it's Blatchford, native village of Blatchford is the, the you can sue a tribal officer uh, who's acting outside the scope or acting unlawfully um, in order to get her potentially get around the immunity piece. But uh, the tribal immunity wall is strong and has been consistently reaffirmed uh, at the federal level.
0: I think uh, two points uh, are are important when it comes to um, uh, suing the tribe uh, directly. Um, as uh, Grant noted the, the the sovereign immunity is broad and is construed very broadly by the courts. Um, the one exception to this though is arbitration in a case called uh CNL. Uh, the uh, court found that a, an agreement to arbitrate um, is an implicit waiver of sovereign immunity and that the, uh, the tribe can be brought into federal court uh, for under the uh, AAA for um, Uh, for uh, any appeal of arbitration awards Uh, another thing to to recognize is that uh, the sovereign immunity tribal sovereign immunity applies not only to the tribal government itself but also to tribally owned enterprises and entities so tribally uh, chartered corporations uh, federally chartered corporations uh, act, acting even off reservation property uh, acting in uh, uh, you know various businesses uh, throughout the, the nation they're also uh, they're also in, they also enjoy the tribe sovereign immunity uh, the exception of this though is incorporation under state law so when a uh, tribal enterprise incorporates under state law uh, it's uh, deemed an entity of the state and uh, the sovereign meaning does not apply.
1: Uh, so, if you slip and fall in a casino, you have to go to
0: tribal court? That's correct. Uh, the tribal assert sovereign immunity and the case will get kicked out of federal or state court. Well, actually, um,
2: in, in a casino context, uh, most large tribal casinos are governed by the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act or IGRA. And in order to get a, a class three gaming license, so your traditional, like, you know, Vegas style casino license, you have to enter a compact with the state. And the compact requires that the state and the tribe agree where disputes involving the casino are going to be heard. So it can be that there, there are compacts that will prefer state court to tribal court, and there are compacts that prefer tribal court to state court. It's actually on a casino by casino, tribe by tribe, state by state basis, where, I mean, slipping and falling in a casino is a little bit unique in that it's, it's governed by these IGRA PACs. Where, in order to get the license, the state and the tribe have to agree in advance to where disputes that are, that arise from the casino will be heard. Um, but if you slip and fall at tribal headquarters, right, that's certainly something that's going to to the tribal court, right? Or, or while you know hunting or fishing on tribal land, certainly to tribal court.
0: That's right, and I think that again that goes back to the principle that uh, tribes can waive their immunity uh, if they want to. And I'd also like to bring up, um, you know. Tribal governments are acting uh, when when they're in doing business dealings, when they are operating casinos. Uh, they have an incentive to be a good government actor, and a lot of times um, that means that they will voluntarily waive their sovereign immunity to be sued in uh, their own tribal court, or as Grant mentioned, to be sued in other courts. Because I think there's a recognition that if you are operating a casino where there's a large number of uh, non-Indians. Uh, coming into the casino and uh, bad news stories, bad facts create bad law. So where there are a number of cases where uh, people were seriously injured and uh, the tribe asserts sovereign immunity, uh, no one is made whole. I think that uh, tribes recognize that this would not be a good look. uh, And the court, the Supreme court has in the past taken a look at maybe we need to relook tribal sovereign immunity. Uh, So it, Tribal sovereign immunity hangs in there uh, sort of on a thread, Um, you know, uh, who knows what this Supreme Court will do if it takes up the idea of tribal sovereign immunity. I mean, I think that tribes recognize that there's there's good uh, PR and there's good uh, reasons to waive sovereign immunity uh, in these instances.
2: And tribes that are trying to protect their sovereignty have all kinds of creative ways in order to preserve their sovereignty while also providing for waivers. So uh, I believe it's Choctaw in Mississippi maintain an escrow account, right, in, in the seven or eight figures located outside the reservation. And so the tribal say, no, we won't we won't waive general sovereign immunity so that you can't go after, you know, a tribal tax revenue or tribal businesses in order to satisfy any judgment. But we'll waive immunity up to the amount held in escrow. Right, uh, and you know we'll give you a balance, or you can check the balance on a regular, or quarterly, or annual, whatever basis, um, and so that provides some degree of kind of, of semblance. It's kind of this middle ground compromise where the tribe doesn't have to to waive its entire immunity, right, uh, which might be problematic uh, with its with its members, but it has a system where uh, if someone has a claim against the tribe, they have a general waiver up to the amount held in escrow, and the amount held in escrow is sufficiently large so that any contractor uh, you know, who's doing business with the tribe can feel comfortable that if they don't get their bill paid, they're going to end up being paid in full. And there are all kinds of these arrangements, right? So uh, we just had you know, the, the last case affirming tribal sovereign immunity uh, was in 2015 or 2016 from the Court, Supreme Court, uh, Michigan v. Bay Mills. We had uh, the aptly named in Indian law Lewis v. Clark, if you can believe it, uh, about the, the individual of a, a tribal employee uh, who the court determined was acting in his individual capacity. And so an individual acting in their individual capacity is not entitled to assert sovereign immunity. That was a 2018 or 2019 case. But um, it, we have all of these different, the, the different ways in which we can waive immunity. And in Lewis v. Clark, uh, you know, the tribe had, for example, waived immunity for all compensatory but not punitive damages. Right, and so it's just—it's interesting. You you get these different variances uh, in tribal tort claims waivers, uh, or or even just in tribal waivers generally, and it's just more nuanced than your general practice when you're you're suing an entity in in state or federal court.
1: Okay, and that segues into the next uh, area, which is talking about what you think are some of the most interesting
0: issues now in Native American law. Ryan, you want to start? You want me to start? Uh, why don't you start and I'll jump in, Grant.
2: <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the things that, that I love about Indian law and, and when I go to my, like, you know, Federal Bar ABA conferences, right, in order to, to even teach Indian law at the law school, when you teach federal Indian law, it's like you're teaching everything in the first year again in one class and how it's different when Indians get involved, right? Uh, and so we have, we have this litigation that just spans the gamut, right? There are, are, uh, there are always cases that are going on involving the protection of things like cultural resources, uh, disputes over, over mining and resource extraction. Uh, of course, working at Standing Rock, you know, I've been, been aptly following the, the developments in the Dakota Access Pipeline cases, uh, which, which come out of, of, of Indian country. We have all kinds of, of questions, and Ryan will talk a little bit, uh, I, I'm sure, since he's worked specifically on some of the, the questions of enrollment So uh, who is a tribal member, Um, you know, can tribes disenroll their members? Uh, We had a case just a year, a couple years ago now, uh, where the Cherokee tried to disenroll uh, the freedmen who were uh, descendants of slaves that had been owned by by Cherokee individuals. Uh, There's a whole slew of litigation now involving the payday loan industry. So uh, tribes, because they have their own sovereignty, uh, have different rules, have different usury rules. So if you create a payday lender uh, pursuant to tribal law instead of state law, you can, in theory, charge much higher rates of interest. And so there have been questions on, on should there be limitations uh, in from the usury context in order to protect consumers. Uh, the St. Regis Mohawk tribe has recently required a, a pharmaceutical patent uh, in order to prevent it from, from losing its kind of patent protection. Uh, is attempting to to use its immunity uh, as a form of economic development, uh, and that's being challenged in, in both, I think, New York, D.C., and Texas uh, as, as one of those kind of big common issues. We always get a slew of, of, of arguments around treaty interpretation and treaty rules. We just got an opinion from, from the court uh, last term that uh, a, a treaty right to travel freely on the highway makes uh, a certain set of tribes in Washington state uh, immune from having to pay state gas taxes. Uh, and so you know, these treaties that were negotiated 150 years ago are still alive and well in our ongoing litigation, not so much in the business side, but on the criminal side, there are a handful of treaties that include language when bad men among the whites act in Indian country, right? And just that, that racialized language, right? Bad men among the whites. We have more than 60 cases now uh, where tribes have sued alleging that either state officers or federal officers constitute bad men among the whites who've done activities or unlawful activities in Indian country. And we just got a, a, a decision from, from one of the D.C. courts saying that these are actionable clauses where the tribes can go and, and be, read the clause a little bit more broadly, um, you know, bad men among persons beholden to the United States, uh, and the tribe can sue for monetary damages. Uh, so many interesting issues or cases in in Indian country. Uh, I mean, just we could talk for three hours, right? So, Ryan, what are what are some of the issues that come across your desk or issues? That right.
0: You're- right. Well, I think that um, what what's most exciting for me is that. Um, a lot of these issues, I mean, of course, uh, Indian tribes and uh, Indian law has always been uh, litigated in federal courts, and there's, there's, there's a number of cases spanning back to the Marshall Trilogy. Um, but what's, what's so exciting for me is that, you know, at the time, you know, around 2009 when I graduated, uh, the tribal gaming generated around... 27 billion dollars a year and what that did is of course it gave tribes um, the ability to uh, prop up their government to use to assert their sovereignty in a more robust way and to quite frankly for the first time in uh, you know in, in hundreds of years to be able to enter to be able to enter the foray of what it really means to to be a government and to assert sovereignty very strongly to do things like Gaming to do things like government 8a contracting to do things uh, like Grant mentioned um, uh, payday lending uh, to sort of play with uh, what it means to be a tribal government and how that uh, that status can be uh, used as an as an advantage because to raise revenue because the, a lot of tribal governments although they do receive some revenue uh, from the federal government. Um, Mostly, they're on their own. So, how do you build robust schools? How do you build robust police departments, public safety? Uh, You need income, and the income comes from uh, tribal gaming. Yes, but there's a lot of casino. Excuse me. There's a lot of tribes that aren't located on the I-5 corridor, on the I-90 corridor, where their revenue is not going to be uh, dependent on uh, on. Travel gaming. Uh, so again, tribes are entering other areas and sort of playing with um, you know how can we raise revenues to 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 us to prompt up our sovereignty. And now they have a lot of times the resources to do it. So um, what's exciting for me is that, as Grant mentioned, there's there's it runs the gamut, but there's a lot more. Uh, it's basically uh, an area where new theories are coming to fruition, where tribes are emboldened to push the boundaries. Finally, standing up and finally doing uh, doing things that are just uh, exciting and bold and new. And there's there's not case law on, for instance, on the uh, payday lending that there wasn't a whole lot of case law on that until you know roughly ten years ago. Um, so these are all relatively new and relatively exciting things. Um, and I think that as a as a litigator who advocates on behalf of tribes and tribal governments and tribal people. Um, It's an exciting time, and and it's been an exciting uh, few years, Um, and I think that it will continue to be so because um, things are always changing, and tribes are looking into new ways to assert their sovereignty uh, and to uh, prop up uh, their governments.
2: Ryan raises a great point with the extra money in Indian country. So uh, tribes that were land-rich have had you know, especially resource rich, right, you know, have had a stream of income from oil and gas. Um, but casino gaming has really changed the the landscape. And we see uh, tribes acquiring a lot more territory. So, you know, between the 1880s and the 1930s, uh, the federal policy was to break up Indian reservations, uh, this policy called allotment where the federal government went in, uh, they gave individual tracts of land to tribal members and then sold what they called was the surplus land on Indian reservations. And that fractionation in Indian country uh, has really made a a lot of jurisdictional disputes, a lot of Indian law very complicated. Tribes have been able to use resources to repurchase a lot of this land. And so we saw over the eight years of the Obama administration, tribes added more than 500,000 acres of land uh back into trust this this kind of protection growing the inherent powers of, of of where the tribe can assert you know where the tribe's power is strongest um and so we right now your tribe's lot went from about 100 and, what was it uh, 160 or so million acres in in 1880 to uh, 56 or so million acres uh, coming out of the allotment period losing more than 90 million acres of land uh, so it'll be a long time before tribes can rebuild their reservations entirely. But as tribes work to rebuild that land, as they build that, that take that land back into trust, there's both litigation from individuals that don't want the reservations to get bigger um, or don't want Indian land to expand. But then as tribes acquire more land, they're also doing more things with it. And from the business context, that's very exciting. Uh, people don't recognize, a lot of people don't realize you can charter a business as Ryan mentioned, under the inherent sovereignty of a tribe instead of under a state, and in Alaska, uh, every Native, uh, every every Indian nation uh, up in Alaska has a, a village corporation chartered for it, and then those car and, and then there are thirteen regional corporations that Native Alaskans join. Uh, they actually organized themselves as as corporations to begin with, and so there's a lot more or a growing sense of even this kind of business litigation that that tribes are engaged in as they expand uh, and probe new business opportunities uh, under the auspices of of expanding tribal government and using their tribal sovereignty.
1: Okay. Uh, We are almost out of time, so I'll just ask each of you if you could give maybe a minute of thoughts about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting tribal courts and tribal law.
0: Oh gosh, um, I think it's affecting tribal courts and tribal law the same way it's affecting um, most courts. Um, but uh, but I think it's pretty safe to say that it's uh, um, it's hit a lot of tribes harder than it has other uh, other jurisdictions, other places. And I think that uh, this uh, it brings to light uh, something that's important is that uh, you know there's still systemic issues in getting health care and getting um, uh, uh, proper funds uh, to uh, Native American tribes uh, to prop up their peoples and to make sure that their, each individual is given, um, you know, uh, is, is treated fairly as, as any other American. And I think there's systemic issues that need to be uh, addressed there that I think that the COVID is definitely brought to light.
2: Yeah, and I would say, you know, we had to cancel the last meeting of the Supreme Court at Standing Rock because the tribal courts were still closed. Uh, due to COVID. So, I mean, and I know that that's true in in a lot of state courts and federal courts around the country, right? We're changing the practice. We're having more teleconferences um, and and that kind of adoption to to relate to COVID-19 is is ongoing. I would say, you know, one of the places where we might even see litigation, you know, there's a flashpoint in South Dakota with a couple tribes trying to close down their reservations, right? Create checkpoints at the border uh, in order to try to keep their communities safe and, and uh, the governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem, objecting to having these state highways closed down. Uh, and so we see this kind of continuing battle between tribal sovereignty and state sovereignty uh, as it relates to COVID and, and as different sovereigns have different ideas about what it what it takes to keep their people safe. Um, and so, you know, I think we'll continue to see um, you know, those disputes uh, are, are gonna play out, not just at the tribal level, but are gonna play out at the state and national, or are playing out at the state and national level uh, as tribes try to respond. I was just on a, a conference call with uh, Doreen McPaul, who's the Attorney General at, at the Navajo Nation the other day. Uh, and she talked about the effects of, of, of COVID at Navajo and how they've just locked down right, you know, curfew orders, right? Um, everything else. I mean, just using tribal sovereignty Uh, in order to respond to the needs of your community. And because COVID has hit tribal communities, particularly hard, uh, native communities and and tribal courts have had to uh, respond accordingly.
1: Okay, Uh, that's all we have time for right now. Thanks Grant, thanks Ryan for sharing your thoughts. And that's it for episode two of this series. The next episodes will cover sports disputes and bankruptcy litigation, not necessarily in that order. Keep your eyes on the Business Law Section's website for the next installments in this series. If you found this discussion of Tribal Court litigation interesting, feel free to get hold of Grant or Ryan or me to talk about joining the Tribal Litigation Subcommittee. Also, the Tribal Court Litigation Subcommittee will be meeting at the Business Law Section virtual annual meeting in September, though a time slot hasn't been assigned yet. So, if this field is interesting to you, be sure to pop into the Subcommittee meeting at the virtual annual meeting.